0: talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Just happy to be upright and retaining fluid today. Keep smiling. SCORE!
2: Yeah. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. Uh, Will Weber is on the board and in the newsroom, uh, Diana Weeks and Dave Wooder jumped into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. Another jam-packed show. And uh, lots coming up uh, to update you on in the world, including uh, the latest out of Ukraine. But, you know, some great news. And you know what? With all the crap that's happening, uh, you know, in the world and so on, like we just get through a global pandemic and now this. Um, well, through it, you know, endemic let's choose our words carefully i guess uh you know but we have to celebrate the victories when we get them and uh the good news is today that capacity limits in ontario have been lifted Uh, the vaccine passport is no longer mandatory and this is uh, due to the great work that everybody's done across the province and the country to get vaccinated and get a handle on this and keeping this pretty much to uh you know um, a virus of those that have not been vaccinated 914 in hospital, 278 in ICU, phenomenal numbers, keep it up, we're going to have probably have the masking for a little bit, uh, the Premier talking about post-March break for that, and, you yeah. know, okay, so, uh, but again, it's time to pat yourself on the back And in, in the doom and gloom that we have, it seems, uh, good job for Ontario, good job for Canada, we have made uh, sacrifices and we have, have earned what we are seeing today, uh, in, in getting the numbers down and getting the people vaccinated up. So congratulations. Take a bow. Uh, good for you and, uh, and your family and everybody else. We're going to get a local angle with this coming up, uh, a little later on, uh, when we talk to, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, uh, and, and get a bit more of a local angle on this. So anyway, um, it's certainly something we're celebrating in, in in a world of doom and gloom. So uh, let's not forget about that. Uh, and congratulations to everybody. Keep up the phenomenal work. All right. Obviously, uh, the things in in Ukraine um, just seem to be the tension seems to be heightening. Uh, interesting. We're going to talk about this a little later on. The UK uh, Ukraine or sorry Ukraine asking to join the European Union. What is involved in that? Is that as easy as what it sounds? uh... obviously uh... something that uh... in an option they're looking at uh... the the sanctions continuing to bite russia shipping flights uh... all being banned uh... the numbers are are just ph- uh, phenomenal six hundred thousand people have fleed ukraine uh... thirteen kids have uh... lost their lives that we know of uh... civilian targets being hit including a tv communications tower and uh... coming up tonight at nine o'clock u.s. president joe biden will give a state of the union address you could be sure this is the uh, uh... front and center mike what are on your th- uh... what's on your mind what are your thoughts
3: I just wanted to say that, um, for all these, uh, the, the businesses that are going to keep all the mandates, um, people should be telling them they're going to be opening themselves up for some lawsuits. So hopefully they be care, they're really careful because that's one thing that nobody's really talking about. All these places that keep these, it's one thing when it's a provincial mandate, then legally they can have that mandate and not let you in without a vaccine passport. Once this mandate is gone, they're gonna be they're gonna open themselves up for some civil litigation that may crush some more small business. You always think the government's got your back, but once again,
0: they Mike, prove
2: you wrong. Were you Joseph yesterday? What's that? Were you Joseph yesterday? Like Joseph yesterday? No, I, never mind. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think I think one thing you have to remember is uh, that when you have a private business, you can still uh, determine who comes in and who doesn't no, come in for whatever talk. reasons. You can't, you can't anyway, talk. you know what, Mike? I'm not going to debate it. We'll get other people on the line to talk about it. Uh, wow, Jesus, we're getting out of this thing, and people are still. <laughs> it's like relax. And by the way, are you know? I think I've heard of one business. And I'm sure there's many more that are, you know, talking about keeping the vaccine passport recommendation. Uh, but at the end, it's just more work and more money for the establishment. So if the profit margins and so many people are going to go out of business, I'm not sure why so many would do that anyway. So uh, thanks for the call. Keep them coming. But, uh, you know, man, let's acknowledge where we are. Uh, and and at least draw from what we've learned rather than trying to create problems that are on the extreme fringes that really are not a problem to the average person in uh, Main Street Hamilton. Uh, for the most of us, we're not getting into these kinds of conflicts. We're just, uh, trying to do our part and get out of a global pandemic as best we can and do what's best for our families and, uh, and friends and such. So, uh, again, uh, as we come out of this global pandemic and enter whatever is next, whether it's conflict or what have you, there'll still be those, uh, that are on the fringes that are trying to pull us into a direction, uh, which does a little to unite and more to point out how bad things really are and that there's Anarchy in the hills and the end of the world is coming. I think after two years uh, in a bit inside a global pandemic, I think not only Canadians, Ontarians, Hamiltonians, but those around the world have got kind of sick of the extremes and are looking for a little bit more representation um, in 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 their neighborhoods, which you know probably pretty much represent the majority of Canadians on both. The center left and the center right. Obviously, uh, we're seeing what has happened uh, happening in Ukraine with Russia and continually uh, fortifying uh, their munitions that are uh, just outside of uh, the capital and such. We're hearing of convoys up to 60k long of uh, of equipment that is lined up and ready to go. And tonight at nine o'clock, and uh, CHML will cover this live at nine o'clock. U.S. President Joe Biden will give his State of the Union address and no doubt Ukraine will be top of mind. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
4: Reggie, are you there? Good afternoon. afternoon.
2: Reggie, uh, how will this uh, State of the Union address be different, considering uh, the factor and what's going on with Ukraine?
4: Well, I mean, look, number one, uh, the State of the Union addresses, they take months to prepare and weeks of rehearsals. Uh, and here we have fast-developing situation in Ukraine that really is uh, putting the White House uh, on kind of a different course here, uh, because this is a speech that often acts as a reset. You, The president looks back at their first year, they look ahead to the second year, potentially the third and fourth, uh, to try and lay out what their agenda is going to be. This time around, uh, the domestic president of the United States is really going to have to put forward foreign policy front and center at the very beginning uh, of this speech, because, A, uh, there are global implications to what President Biden will say at any point, not just at a State of the Union. But number two, uh, foreign policy is keenly intertwined now with domestic policy given inflation rates across the United States with what's happening with sanctions on Russia. So this is going to be a sell to the American people of Biden's agenda, but also a global agenda.
2: How is this selling in America? Is this a uniting factor in any way?
4: I mean, look, uh, in the last couple of hours uh, uh, we had the Senate Minority Leader uh, Republican Mitch McConnell come out to say that there is broad bipartisan support for the actions that President Biden is taking when it comes to not only pushing back on the pressure and the militaristic approach from the Kremlin, but also uh, in uh, standing with the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian government uh, and the funding for Ukraine uh, in order to uh, to kind of uh, prop it up and secure it. Uh, The fact that he has bipartisan support on that is a good sign because this uh, is a president. This is a country that really has been dealing with this growing partisan rift over the last year or so. Uh, There's still not broad approval for any kind of military action from the American public. But again, that's still not possible given the fact that Ukraine's not a NATO country
2: uh how how does the uh republican party square that circle considering donald trump seems to still be flattering putin and and i guess has been out saying that you know if he was still in power uh this would have never happened and that russia would have never invaded ukraine
4: Revisionist history is a part of how the Republicans operate. Uh, It's also worth remembering that when Donald Trump was president, a part of his impeachment came from a phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, where he was trying to hold back military weaponry. Uh, in order to dig up dirt uh, on Joe Biden. I mean, Republicans ignore mm. what happened when he was still in power. Well, at the same time, yes, there are Republicans standing by Russia. There are Republicans that are hesitant to push back uh, on President Putin because they fear they may fall on the wrong side of Donald Trump or on the wrong side uh, of the base. But there is still a majority of the Republican Party still standing by the Ukrainian people and understanding uh, that, that this is a global conflict uh, and seeing that Russia is in the wrong
2: Could uh, this Ukraine conflict separate the Republican Party and finally push, uh, you know, it to the side of sanity as opposed to Donald Trump?
4: Uh, Anything is possible. Um, You know, there's 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 a reality down here where whatever is happening in Ukraine and the sanctions that continue on Russia are obviously going to have an impact. On the United States, uh, you know, we'll have to watch to see if the sanctions have an impact on inflation across the U.S., something that is you know, broadly supported, the sanctions broadly supported by the Republican Party, uh, along with Democrats, when uh, that starts to have an impact either on inflation or on, on debt prices. Uh, In the U.S., do Republicans revert back to, well, this is a Biden problem now because he's dealing with things inappropriately? The way that the Republican Party sees anything on the global stage or anything on the domestic agenda is always approached at a moment by moment notice, forgetting what happened the moment prior. (laughs)
2: <laughs> um, so can any Republican, any American justify supporting, uh, Vladimir Putin and, 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 this, and this regime? I mean, that seems to go against every core, uh, American value, especially those in the South and those that may be pro, uh, that might be on the right.
4: I mean, look, uh, people who may be uh, in support uh, of the Kremlin or or this kind of, you know, violent military uh, kind of overtaking across Ukraine, obviously standing on the wrong side of not just the Democratic Party in the United States and the president, but they're standing on the wrong side of the majority of the world who has issued yeah. wide condemnation uh, for this ongoing, um, you know, issue that we're seeing across Ukraine. There will be Republicans that try to, you know, uh, uh, you know, work off of this and use it to to push their own agenda agendas and possibly, you know, eat up whatever votes they can across the United States. But at the end of the day, there is still a broad push here to stand with the Ukrainian people.
2: Will this State of the Union be all about Ukraine? Or how, how much how do you see decide how to balance this out and, and keep this on what the purpose of the State of the Union is all about?
4: Yeah, I mean, look, this is oftentimes a half hour speech, an hour speech, an hour and a half speech, depending on which the, who, what president is speaking. This is going to be a powerful moment off the top. It, we don't know how long he's going to last. They haven't given any excerpts yet, but he won't be able to focus solely on foreign policy. He does have accomplishments he wants to talk about, namely the infrastructure package uh, that was passed last year. Problem with the administration right now is they have a struggled agenda. They weren't able to get their kind of social spending platform uh, in place. They have struggled when it comes to COVID policies and the pushback on the science surrounding covid uh, and supply chain issues and the economy so the president's going to look at the broad issue uh, of of things that are impacting the average american explain why things may not have worked to now how he's going to try to build support to get that and then use that evergreen comment of you know the best days are still to come for america it'll be a wide-ranging speech but the issue of ukraine is likely going to come up time and time again
2: all right can't let you go reggie anything on the on the freedom convoy that going anywhere is that all a moot point at this point
4: there are fences up around the U.S. Capitol. Uh, there are no trucks uh, in D.C. from what we understand. There were a couple of trucks that left California uh, and it dissolved by the time it got to uh, Vegas. Uh, very few, if any, th- trucks are driving across towards D.C. There have been no you know, warnings by D.C. police or Maryland police or Virginia police about this. The threat is still there. It just doesn't look like anything is going to actually open up.
2: Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington Correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight and at 9 o'clock, the State of the Union, and we will cover that live here on CHML. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: John is on the line. John, what are your thoughts?
0: Hello, Scott. How are you today? Good. You? Very good. Um,
5: after listening to and I listen to you every night on, the, on my way home from work, Um, listening and hearing how much money that the canadian that the canadian government spends getting fuel from russia i think it's about time and let's break down the political borders and i don't care who which party it is we have to think about canada and if there's anything that this conflict um has taught us and the pandemic has taught us is canada has to become more self-sufficient take that 360 million dollars a year and let's get our own fuel. Let's, let's build up Canada so Canada can help its allies and the world will be a better place. And uh, that's it.
2: Well said, John. Thanks for that. Much appreciated. (laughs) Obviously, you've heard of sanctions uh, being introduced from uh, many, well, pretty much all of uh, the democratic world, Canada following suit with those, everything uh, from, well, (laughs) vodka to ships going in and out of our waters and and planes flying in and out of our airspace. Uh, Sanctions uh, hammering the ruble, uh, and now it's fallen to uh, extremely low below the U.S. dollar at this point, uh, in interest rates sitting at about uh, 20%. So this is very much starting to affect Russian citizens as they try to get cash uh, out of banking machines and try to conduct their daily business. Let's bring in Eric Cam, professor of macroeconomics, monetary economics, and international monetary uh, economics with Ryerson University with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
6: Always a pleasure. I am. I hope you are as well.
2: Yes, thanks so much. How are these sanctions actually affecting the average Russian citizen and Putin himself? Let's start with citizenry.
6: Well, the answer is, this is very, very early days. And Russia is in a very, very luxurious position of having a lot of billions of dollars scattered around the world. I mean, I once said, Um, And I I may I may pay for this one day that it's a very big money laundering operation. But in a sense, it is because it keeps billions of dollars in many different countries, in many different accounts, and they can access that money fairly easily. So in the early days, um, they're not going to be terribly affected by this. But if this starts to go on, if this thing drags out. The problem is, is that their currency is is becoming worth less than the video from my first marriage, which didn't make it. And what that's <laughs> going to mean in the long run is is um, tantamount to uh, catastrophic for the people and for the government, because what you're watching now is is a currency being attacked. Right. It's a sudden and drastic devaluation of this nation's currency, coupled with volatile markets and a complete lack of faith in the nation's economy. And that is never good, Scott. So we can talk about the ramifications of that. But the answer is, again, short run, not so bad because of their wealth. In the long run, there could be very, very harmful effects.
2: We're still seeing lineups at at cash machines and such. Is this just the normal part of a conflict in that part of the world? Or uh, many are saying that's drying up?
6: Well, you're seeing what happens when people start to wonder if there's going to be food on the shelves. And so, you know, you even saw it here. We didn't have a currency crisis, but you saw when someone said that there's a pandemic and the stores are going to close, you couldn't find toilet paper. So you're kind of seeing that in Russia just for a different reason. So, again, you know, to take it back to economics, right, this currency crisis is, is just seriously a sharp decline in the value of their currency, which one day means that people wake up and realize that their currency isn't very valuable. In other words, their purchasing power or what that currency can buy means very little. So what does the country do? Well, its first line of defense, of course, is it turns to their central bank and says, can you please, in the face of this devaluation, prop up our currency? Well, the central bank only has one lever to pull, right? It has to increase the interest rate. How does it increase the interest rate? It has to lower the money supply. And you hope that you can sell your currency uh, for other people's currency and then keep your currency somewhat balanced, or at least you don't lose too much of its value. Well, so this selling off foreign currencies and you create capital outflows, this will work under normal circumstances. But as, as you know, Scott, this isn't normal circumstances. And countries right now are not willing to play the monetary buy and sell game with Russia. And that's really the crux of this, is you can support your currency as long as you have, A, your own currency, and B, your own central bank, and C, trading partners. The problem is, is that right now, Russia is running mm. out of trading partners.
2: So who is left to help Russia? Is that China? Who Who is interested in helping?
6: Um, countries that are favorable. I mean, do, China does come to mind. There may be other countries That whether they brag about it or not are willing to frankly make money off of this disaster i mean because if there are countries out there willing to play ball with putin then they may be they may be willing to provide currency at something of a premium you know unfortunately as as they said in narcos um when you have Hmm. uh, tough times it kind of brings out the profit launderers and so whether it's china or whether it's other nations They may look at this and say, well, we don't support the guy, but we support the fact that we could probably make a quick dollar off of helping Russia prop up their currency. So you can rest assured if there's profit to be made, some country, Scott, will step up. Um,
2: at the beginning of all this, Putin was selling this to Russian people. And I don't want to get too political on this, but selling this to the Russian people as this is a liberation. They're calling for our help and we got to go in there and save them. Obviously, now their economy is starting to crumble. How, how does he balance that? At what point do, uh, does, does the population say, Hey, wait a sec. This isn't what, this isn't going to plan. This isn't what was supposed to happen.
6: Well, that's right. So the only thing he has at his disposal is, is the prayer the hope and prayer that he has a myopic population that is loyal to him and sees this 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 russian oligarchy as being as being worth the fight as being worth going in and potentially overthrowing smaller weaker nations but again you know people tend to speak with their wallet and speak with their feet and if and if their currency keeps going down and things keep disappearing, and people's purchasing power keeps decreasing to the point where their money isn't worth anything. And before the good listenership says, Yeah, but does that ever happen? It's happened in Argentina, it's happened in Brazil, it's happened in Israel. If the people start to realize that we are losing in this and losing large, then you can get a real revolt, both economically and politically. But again, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, the best thing that the, that Russia's got going for it right now is that it is powerful, it is wealthy, and it is early. So they can bide their time for a bit, Scott, but not forever.
2: Eric Cam with us, Professor of Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics, International as well with Ryerson University. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
6: Stay healthy, Scott. When there's
0: an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXM.
2: Judy's on the line. Judy, what are your thoughts today?
1: Sorry, why do we always have to import oil when we have the oil sands out west?
2: Great question Judy uh but it's um I don't know we'd sooner buy it from uh, bad actors than we would have the reputation uh and dirty oil on our hands from producing it ourselves but you're absolutely correct it makes us reliant on others and unfortunately we we lose a lot of jobs to it but uh yeah it, that's a good question and the people out west would l- have been asking that question for an awful long time
1: Yeah I know and it like it doesn't make any sense why should we buy it from other people when we've got it Well, and
2: not only that, we've got clean natural gas here that we can't get to Tidewater to ship out and help Europe because we won't build any pipelines. So over and above what we can do for ourselves, we could be helping out uh, Europe right now, who's a slave to Russia with their uh, natural gas and such, and China with their coal. So, again, you know, uh, uh, you may try to save the planet, but you're killing society. So (laughs) it has got to be a balance somewhere.
1: In my estimation, I'm just an 81-year-old lady. But, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Why should we buy from somebody else when we've got probably a better product here?
2: Judy, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. As we've been chatting, uh, obviously with Eric Ham, uh, Russia is is feeling the pressure uh, uh, and slowly isolating itself uh, from other parts of the world as their strategy in Ukraine has has proved to be a little bit more difficult than what they certainly envisioned and certainly blowback from the rest of the world, including those in Russia uh, as well. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow of the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute and is with us now. Thanks for the time, Charles. Much appreciated.
7: Good to speak with you, Scott.
2: You know, uh, uh, earlier yesterday, we were talking to Sam Cooper from out west with Global News. He was talking about uh, Chinese money laundering and uh, a family in Toronto that had like 150 whatever million dollars invested in real estate in this city. We hear the same thing when it comes to the Russian oligarchs and, and such and and that they're investing a lot of money here as well. Uh, how big a problem is this with dirty money from both these places?
7: It's a huge problem. I I did write the introduction to Sam's uh, recent book about this and you know, right now our government is cracking down on the Russian oligarchs to try and uh, freeze their assets in Canada. So the question is why don't we do the same with um, Chinese people who have money of doubtful provenance that uh you know sam's book makes very clear has entered our country through criminal networks and is laundered through casinos and so on why can't we deal with that issue and you know the answer really is i I think and i think sam's book certainly makes this point that there are an awful lot of vested interests people who are benefiting from this money coming in real estate agents uh, the government from the casino revenues and all sorts of murky uh networks that allow us to get in a situation where corrupt earnings from abroad whether it be china russia iran saudi arabia is being stored in our real estate making it uh, impossible for ordinary young canadians to buy a house and you know get get their families going so it should be a priority
2: will this focus on russia and and sanctioning even putin's own personal wealth and those uh, around him will that put more focus on these other players like the china uh, china's and saudi arabias and such and and, and identify what a, a problem this is and as you said uh, not only uh, benefits these countries but affects our own real estate market
7: yeah, I mean, you know, I think that, that we're getting the message that we have to pay more attention to what these megalomaniac autocrats are saying, and, you know, we've known for a long time that Putin was filled with sieging, ra- seething rage over the the, the the decline of the Soviet empire through the collapse of the Soviet Union, and has been saying for a long time that, you know, Russia needs to do something to restore its position in the world. So you, you know, he said it. Uh, everybody thought, well, you know, he's just he's just sounding off that he'd never do anything that would be against the overall interests of of Russia by by you know forcibly retaking someplace through military force, or for that matter, you know, threatening to use nuclear weapons if he doesn't get his way. But you know, ultimately, he doesn't care about the suffering on the Russian people that the sanctions will uh, will lead to. He has a greater sort of ideologically spiritual and delusional sense of what Russia should be in the world. And you see the same thing with the Chinese leader who who feels uh, that you know China has been kept down by the United states and and its allies like Canada, and that China should become the dominant power on the planet. And he has a plan to fulfill that and our government just, you know, refuses to, to respond to, to what's really going on hidden in plain sight in our country with regard to malign activities by the Chinese regime in all sorts of areas.
2: Let me ask you one quick question, Charles, and we've only got a limited amount of time here. What if this was China that was on this march as opposed to Russia? Because we're certainly not as dependent on Russia. I mean, obviously, Europe is with its natural gas, but the rest not as dependent on Russia as the world has become on China. What if the shoe was on their foot?
7: Yeah, exactly. I mean, what if China decides that it's time to go into Taiwan and to retake that that uh, democratic island where the people do not identify as Chinese um, you know, would we say, well, uh, you know, that's just the way it goes. We have to, we have to be concerned about global peace and the global economy and the business interests of large Canadian corporations who have well-established networks with Chinese communist uh, business. You know, so uh, I, I think you raise a very good point there, Scott. It's uh, this is not an even Stephen situation, and I wonder if we would be so outraged if it was the Taiwanese that were facing the bombs and and having to. To arm themselves in a guerrilla war to try and 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 uh, defend themselves from an invader that hopes to eliminate their country and culture and language
2: good point charles burton with his senior fellow with the center for advancing canada's interest abroad at the mcdonald laurier institute talking about the relationship between russia and china and the conflict in the world charles as always thanks for the time be well
7: great to speak with you this is-
8: Today, we are announcing our intention to ban all imports of crude oil from Russia.
0: (laughs) Hamilton's News, today's talk. All
2: right, uh, as we talked about uh, yesterday, and, you know, I found this fascinating, that uh, I'm watching and we covered the prime minister's news conference yesterday after 430. And, and, you know, I'm listening. I'm trying to pay attention. I'm trying to, jo- you know, jot down notes and, and they're doing a, a question in French or no, sorry. He's giving his, his speech and in French, he says, uh, we're going to stop importing oil from Russia. And it was the Russian translation I heard because. <clears throat> Sorry, the French translation I heard uh, because he obviously said it in French, and then it, it, it it's amazing because on uh, on English media you'll relative you'll you'll rarely hear uh, uh, an actuality a clip of somebody in another language because it's just too confusing. You're listening to the translator rather than the actual person. So how strategic of our prime minister to say in French at his news conference yesterday that we're not importing any more oil from Russia? What? How many Canadians out there know we are importing oil from Russia? Uh, well, we're trying to shut it down in the West and not building any pipelines, which obviously Europe is in great need of right now and our natural resources, but we're too busy being green to help the rest of the world from Russia. So, uh, fascinating to me that this is all happening. Uh, it's only 2.6 percent, but that's still more than our contribution to global greenhouse gases as a country every year, if my numbers are accurate. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. He's with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
5: I'm fine. Busy day, Scott, and it's going to be a busier in the next, uh, well, 36 hours when you see an additional eight cents a liter added to the price of, uh, up, man, about uh, $0.12, cents, $0.13 cents if you need diesel.
2: Okay, so let's start with that. Uh, by Thursday, we could see $0.11. Cents. Talk about what this is, what the reasoning is for it.
5: It's $0.08. Cents. Uh, I think there's one uh, group out of Toronto that uh, likes to copy my stuff, and just to get ahead of it, they uh, they come up with sensational numbers. $0.02 cent increase tomorrow for gas uh, uh, in the uh, GTHA, followed by a $0.06 cent increase. My math says that's $0.08 cents by Thursday. Right. Uh, don't believe other imposters who would like to uh, sensationalize. At the end of the day though, we're still talking a buck sixty six nine for a liter of uh, gasoline, uh, a price that we have never seen, a nickel above uh, the February 16th all-time high of one one nine and uh, likely an indication of where we're going. Buck uh, 75 litre liter uh, just around the corner.
2: We know you've been talking about this, uh, you know, and are blue in the face as a result of it. Is this start starting to gain? Is it getting national attention? We find out we're buying oil from Russia. We're finding out prices are going through the roof. We're finding out that places like Europe need uh, Canada's natural resources. Uh, Is this finally making headway? There was an incredible article in the National Post today from Rex Murphy, which talked very much about this, how greenism has helped Putin fuel his warming. Machine.
4: I think it is. I just think the,
5: those who have been pushing the climate narrative uh, to the extent that it is uh, denying Canada's ability to be able to produce energy, cleaner energy than perhaps anyone on the face of this planet, uh, is running contrary to the narrative. And uh, they're very well entrenched ideas. And you have to understand this idea of connecting uh, the green uh, policies of, you know, shutting down oil, uh, shutting down gas, shutting down believe it or not, even nuclear uh, and coal has led Europe to be enfeebled and really uh, the plaything of uh, Vladimir Putin, the argument being, of course, that it's really led to Mr. Putin uh, being, uh, you know, uh, emboldened to do what he's doing to the Ukraine. That aside, I think a serious adult discussion from people who can't afford to make ends meet, that means that tends to be a lot of us. The Angus Reid polling uh, that you had alluded to yesterday, I think is a pretty good example of where I think Canadians are at, And that it, it's, it's shocking to most Canadians to know that we're actually importing oil in a country that is the third largest provable reserves of oil in the world. This makes no sense, but for the longest time, the narrative, narrative has always been to, uh, at, so, at some point, ignore this, uh, make sure that people aren't aware of this. Reality, I think, is starting to bite, and uh, with buck sixty-seven a litre, I think uh, there's a lot more people paying attention to uh, the uh, proverbial elephant in the room, that's global security of energy supplies, which Canada can provide a lot of, were it not for the fact that we've been loving the idea of blocking pipelines in this country.
2: So how can Canada help? I mean, obviously, you can't build a pipeline overnight. How can we help? And, and and you know, even if this conflict is quickly resolved, it, it certainly pointed out, as has the pandemic, the need to be self-sufficient. So what can we do?
5: First item, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau should be on the line with Biden saying, hey, why the hell are you importing 800,000 barrels of Russian oil a day? Uh, I see that Mr. Trudeau has taken two of my recommendations that I put on in a tweet a few days ago, one to stop any importation of crude or crude products, of which we imported 378 million last year, uh, and the second uh, to you know that he took up, which was no longer allowing Russian vessels into international waters, so they can deliver that 800,000 barrels of oil to woke California and woke Washington State that hate Canadian oil but have no trouble with Russian oil. I think that's the conversation the Prime Minister has to have with, uh, uh, with Joe Biden and say, look, we need to restore the idea of energy security. That goes hand in hand with global security. And without that, uh, we're going to continue to see not just the Vladimir Putins of this world, but, uh, you know, the Irans of this world, the Chinas of this world, playing games and playing havoc, knowing that they can uh, pull the trigger any time, attack a country mercilessly, and uh, there will be very little in the way of response. We don't want to give these folks the means for them to further destabilize our, uh, our, our, uh, our world.
2: And we we certainly have seen where lack of self sufficiency has got self sufficiency has gotten us with a pandemic, and now we're seeing that with conflict. So uh, how many yep. how many more examples do we need here? Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about Russia's uh, grasp on the world because of its energy reserves and what the rest of us need to do. Dan, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. Cheers. <laughs> You're listening to the Hamilton
0: Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: You know, we were talking about this earlier, uh, you know, considering what's going on in the world and, you know, we're trying to get out of a global pandemic and and now we're seeing the conflict with Ukraine and my goodness, uh, where does it all end? But, you know, I I think today is a very important day and it's time that, uh, you know, in the city, in the province, in the country, we stop and uh, just pat ourselves on the back for what we have accomplished here. Because obviously with today being March 1st, We are seeing another step forward in reopening with uh, mandatory capacity limits and vaccine uh, passport certificates. Uh, becoming a thing of the past. Masking still in, still recommending that. Uh, although there's rumors floating that that may change after uh, March break and such. But you know, when you think about it, in in uh, under a thousand nine hundred and fourteen in hospital today related to COVID two seventy nine in ICU uh, compared to some of the numbers that we've uh, talked about even a couple of months ago, uh, six months ago, a year ago, what ha- what have you? Uh, and not to mention the great uptake in vaccine. We have come a tremendously long way and uh, kudos to everybody in the hammer uh, both citizenry and those uh, in in the healthcare industry that have worked so hard to get us where we are and today is a day believe it or not that we should be patting our back ourselves on the back for all that we have done uh, to get control of this uh, global pandemic and get to where we are where we can do this that being said let's get a local angle of uh, our situation in Hamilton and bring in Dr. Elizabeth Richardson chief medical officer of health for the city of hamilton and with us now doctor thanks for the time i hope you're well
8: thanks god i am i hope you are too
2: what remains yes thank you what remains uh, the biggest challenge for hamilton in regard to this virus moving forward at that at this stage my goodness it's almost two years if you count march break to march break what what are the challenges that still remain
8: yeah, Scott, I just wanted to say I thought you you said that so very well. The work that Hamiltonians have done across our city, you know, whether those are small businesses. When you go back to the beginning and we had people on the front lines and grocery stores and drug stores and all those sorts of things, you know, continuing on in the face of what we didn't know much about at all. And and as uh, as many of us stayed to work from home or unfortunately had, you know, had jobs that we couldn't go to. Um, to the day where we've gone through a vaccine program, we've had people following the public health measures, the ups and the downs of the different waves. You know, it's just tremendous the amount of uh, of commitment, the sacrifice that we've had here in, in Hamilton, the commitment of many, many, many people across business, healthcare, you know, across the whole of our community um, to work on this issue and get to where we are today. And you know, to have a vaccine, you know, many vaccines now in hand that are effective, to have treatments that are effective you know, it does allow us to move forward and think about, you know, what comes next. So some of those challenging things are just, you know, trying to sort through what does come next. How do we get to a place where we're not having to have such a, um, you know, significant response in relation to any new variant that comes in, but we can, you know, rely on these things that we have put in place. Vaccines, you know, will we need boosters as we go forward? Well, we need some level of control measures as we go forward. So you think about masks, for instance. And you've heard Dr. Moore speak to this about, you know, we are looking at masks, we're looking to hopefully lift those masks in the coming months, but then might we need to go back to them come fall and maybe mm-hmm. we need to take a few more infection control measures. But can we you know, stay away from where we've been with having to have such a great level of response. So figuring out what those potential futures might be, getting ready for them and figuring out how to do that in the way that provides the best protection, but the least, you know, additional consequences from this pandemic, that's certainly a big part of where we find ourselves now.
2: As a Chief Medical Officer of Health, are you confident in in loosening some of these restrictions and, and opening things back up? Are you comfortable where we are to be doing
7: this?
8: Yeah, I definitely am. You know, on a couple of fronts, one is just you know, our vaccination levels are very good. We know these vaccines work. We know the impact they've had. We've seen it in the ways. We know that we can use them for those who are particularly vulnerable, like in our long-term care settings. We've done a lot of work with our congregate settings across the board around infection prevention and control. You know, they're well accustomed to the use of PPE masks. Down to all those things and the measures that need to be taken. There's been a lot of attention to making sure we can shore up because it gets very busy in those settings. If you do have an outbreak that goes on. Um, So we've done lots of work across multiple sectors and I think, you know, people are really um, well accustomed to what it is they need to think about when doing their own personal risk assessment and what measures they can take to make a difference. Staying home with your sick is a big one. I think that one might be one that you know, from a work perspective as we move forward that people really need to to take to hand. Business does, individuals do, and that's why sick pay continues to be such an important part of what needs to continue to be put into policy and into effect so that workers can stay home when they are sick.
2: Uh, as I mentioned, it was funny, we were talking to Jason Thorne, I think it was last week, and I think he said it was March 12th that the emergency table met for the first time. So we are, although this has been around for certainly over two years now, it was it was roughly March break when it really seemed to make an impact here. After looking at this for two years, and, and many predicted we'd be where we are in the, in the epidemiology industry and such, but what stands out for you uh, looking back at this from where we are now over the last two years? What do you think we've learned from? This.
8: Well, we've certainly learned a lot. You know, we've, we've come together across, um, you know, many systems, across communities to manage these things. We've learned a lot about the social determinants of health, as we call them. We've learned about the impacts on equity-seeking groups, on racialized populations, on uh, people who are, you know, sicker because of those determinants and are able to get sick because of those determinants. And I think that's been particularly an important piece. It happens, you know, it's it's an impact no matter what disease we're talking about, whether it's an infectious disease or a chronic disease like heart disease and those sorts of things, diabetes, but um, it's really driven those home. And I think figuring out how to continue forward in the really important work at, um, you know, address those inequalities, addressing those systemic barriers is something that's really going to be our work for, you know, years, if not decades to come. Um, but as well, those really, you know, really, really challenging moments when we had large outbreaks at the beginning in some of our retirement homes and long-term care homes, and just, you know, the impacts that we're seeing on their residents and as well on their staff, the, the challenges, the fear, not knowing what we were dealing with in those early days, those were very challenging. And then the speed of the Omicron wave. Um, and having to rely on vaccines and, and get them out as quickly as we could and mount that response over the course of about 10 days from, you know, less than, you know, sitting around 1,500 doses a day to up over 10,000 doses a day, you know, it was really quite remarkable. So those are just sort of three key highlights, but there have been so many great things, the work that we did with the Chamber of Commerce, the um, work across the healthcare system, our healthcare system partners have just been amazing in their response dr
2: elizabeth richardson chief medical officer of health for the city of hamilton talking about the reopening we are experiencing today and just uh where the thoughts are after two years of this uh doctor thanks so much for the time as always you've always been available to us we greatly appreciate that and certainly pass along to all the staff uh, how much we greatly appreciate everything that you've all done for hamiltonians over the last couple of years be well doctor you too
8: scott
0: thompson isn't satisfied with an answer he'll delve
8: into the issue until he is
0: you're listening to hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk, 900 chml
2: a lot of people touched by uh all of this and 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 it's amazing how the rest of the world has finally responded uh to this aggression aggression and i think that's something that uh that uh uh, that putin greatly under uh, underestimated i think he thought that uh ukraine would lie down uh similar to crimea and that would be it and and that's certainly not the case and ukraine winning support from all over the world especially their president for his heroic stance in all of this uh but how can we help out on uh, a local level. Uh, obviously, Ukraine population in this city and a lot are extremely concerned about what is going on. Let's bring in Konstantin Shiweli, uh, President, Ukrainian National Federation of Canada, the Hamilton branch, and is with us now. Constantine, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
9: Good afternoon, Scott. Thank you very much, uh, considering the circumstances I am. Thank you.
2: Uh, Let's start off right away. Uh, Locally, what can we do? What are the local uh, associations and and, uh, Ukrainian associations and such? What can we do on a local level to help out here?
9: Um, Currently, on a local level, the various Ukrainian organizations uh, in Hamilton, including the churches, the various churches in Hamilton, are collecting donations. Um, There is a humanitarian relief appeal that's been set up and established by the Canadian Ukrainian Foundation and the Ukrainian Canadian Congress where donations can be made uh, where we can help out with the humanitarian effort uh, in Ukraine
2: And what is your website for the Ukrainian National Federation
9: of Canada Hamilton branch? It is unfhamilton at (laughs) outlook.com
2: Constantine gave us the, uh, updated the address. Uh, so the address, if you want to contribute to the Ukrainian National Federation of Canada, is ucc.ca. That's ucc.ca, to contribute to the Hamilton branch of the, uh, Ukrainian National Federation of Canada. Uh, as well, you can go to our website at 900chml.com, links to the Red Cross and, uh, those sorts of organizations. So, what have you been hearing from the community locally about what's been going on in ukraine? what's What's the feedback?
9: There is still a sense of abandonment. Um, as As Russia pushes forward, uh, we can see the outpouring of support from the Western allies, but we're still standing by and watching as innocent civilians and 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 civilian infrastructure is being bombed and destroyed and people are being displaced.
2: Uh, Obviously, we hear that the reason uh, that there isn't more support militarily other than just equipment and such is because Ukraine is not part of NATO. What are your thoughts on all of that and and why they're not?
9: Well, Ukraine may not be part of NATO. Then why are we supporting Ukraine now? There's obviously a threat involved here. And had we acted earlier as we are doing now, we might have deterred a further incursion by Vladimir Putin and his regime. Unfortunately, he's called our bluff and he's gone further into Ukraine and it's caused unnecessary suffering on on a very wide scale.
2: What is the relationship or was the relationship between Ukraine and Russia? Because we, you know, we've hear that there's, there's, there's separatists and some that, that don't want to be part of Ukraine, would rather be part of Russia. Yet we hear others that are saying, you're killing our brothers and sisters here. What's it like for civilians that are, uh, from both these countries who have perhaps have families that are a combination of both? What's the relationship like between these two countries
9: prior to this? Well, historically the Ukrainian population has been oppressed by the Russians. This goes back hundreds of years and the main threat to Vladimir Putin, why everybody asks, why is Putin doing this? And it's not because of a power grab. It's not because he needs money. It's because he fears the Ukrainian identity. And this is nothing short of a genocide against the Ukrainian people. As we are indigenous to the land, we are natives to that land. A thousand years ago, where the Russians are currently, there was nobody there. So it is a real threat to to the Russian people themselves if we tell them they didn't exist, they come from us. So the fact that families are on both sides of the border doesn't help. But this is displacement over centuries of Ukrainians being shipped out to the gulags in Siberia, being persecuted for speaking their language, for, for speaking their mind. And they've been replaced with with Russians. These are actual Russian people living in Ukrainian lands where Ukrainians once lived.
2: Was the community surprised at the speed and and the action that Putin took, or did they see the writing on the wall and knew this was coming, could see it coming?
9: Ukrainians knew it was coming. The Ukrainian diaspora knew it was coming. The telltale signs were there. And Russia didn't just invade. Russia invaded eight years ago. They're just pushing the gambit further. And Putin, as a poker player, would go all in, has put his chips in the middle of the table, has shown his cards, and it's hard to say he's going to back out and end up with nothing. So it's more dangerous now uh, than it's ever been, especially considering he's activated his nuclear deterrent. And again, I mentioned before um, through the media that if we wait for him to go further in to Ukraine, it's too late. And if we wait again for him to use a nuclear weapon I have no more to say after that
2: Hmm. how do you think this is playing in russia we heard that there's been protests in moscow that thousands have been arrested uh do you think they were they were planning all of that do you think that they were expecting all of this they didn't think that i don't think this is what they bargained for
9: well if you look at the protests in russia the contingent of the protesters is mostly uh, a younger group of people and they're brutally brutally crushed and and those, those those protests are dispersed the protesters are beaten; they're put in jail, and it's not fair to them if they're the ones protesting against what their regime is doing. My question is: Where is the Russian community outside of the Russian borders? We have a Russian community in Canada. We have we have a Russian community in in, in America, and why aren't they protesting in front of the embassies and the consulates? Their image is being destroyed on an international level by one individual and and his small group of cronies. Uh, That should not represent all Russians, but why are they not voicing their support for for the Ukrainian defense of their freedom? If they're silent, if they're not against it, they must be for it. So I'm really looking as to why they're not uh, uh, being more vocal about what's going on in, in, in Ukraine.
2: Constantine Shuelli with us, President Ukrainian National Federation of Canada, the Hamilton branch. You can search them on the web and make donations through there. You can also follow uh, our links on nine hundred chml and contribute that way. Constantine, thanks so much for the uh, news, much appreciated. Be well, and uh, and our support is with you moving forward. Our prayers and thoughts. Good luck.
9: Thank you, Scott. You as well. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today
0: podcast from 900 CHML.
2: We certainly know what is going on in Ukraine and Russia's invasion of and how the rest of the world is responding to this. Uh, It just announced a little earlier on that the uh, European Union is united against Russia. That is their latest statement and planning to support uh ukraine as we know that uh ukraine trying to get into uh the eu but really uh because not a nato country not much uh the rest of us can do other than try to supply uh ukraine with everything that it needs uh and and provide sanctions and such is there anything more we can do our politicians can do let's bring in daniel perry consultant summa strategies and with us now daniel thanks for the time i hope you're well
10: thanks Scott. I hope you're doing well as well
2: Thanks so much. Uh, how much of an impact does or do Canadian sanctions have? Is, is there much we can do as a country here?
10: Well, I don't think Putin and the rest of the Russians are staying up late because Canada is sanctioning people uh, out, of, out of Canada. But what is impacting them is our sanctions against their banking systems. And that's been a great move that, this, that our government has taken is to block funding uh, of their banks. And that's really hitting a lot of people in Russia very hard. And I'm sure the government is keeping an eye on that.
2: Uh, it's inter- interesting you bring that up because of late we've been talking to many experts whether it's russian or chinese oligarchs that are that are investing in, in storing money in in canada whether it's on the bridal path in toronto or out in vancouver uh some way but it seems that for the most part government has been lax in really addressing any of this has this changed this with this will this focus on uh russian dirty money be focused on every other country that's doing it
10: i think right now for the government their focus is just on russia i I really hope they do crack down on dirty money in general just because that's not money we want circulating through our country or other countries as well so I, i think this creates an opportunity for the government to dive a little bit deeper into foreign funding and kind of looking at that will we that is a great question um Uh, It's a hard one to answer just because the government's hands are very tied right now. I also think right now is not a time for the government to overpromise. They've done a very good job so far, knock on wood, of focusing on the issue, which is Russia, and not trying to be all things to all people, which they traditionally like to do. So I think for right now, they're just going to be focusing on Russia and trying to prevent this war.
2: Good for our federal government to be hyper-focused on this event right now, considering what happened just a few weeks ago.
10: Yeah, it's been honestly almost like the adults are back in the room. Instead of letting this go on for three weeks without actually touching anything like they did with the occupation in Ottawa, they've really... It's funny you should say that.
2: It's... It's funny you should say that, Daniel, because I remember I said uh, about first day or two or three into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it seemed that the prime minister had spoke more in that first couple of days than he did in the entire three weeks of the Ottawa occupation.
10: Well, it really seems like he's coming out of witness protection that I might also just because Parliament's back, he's preparing to write his budget as well as his re-election speech in that side, that budget. So I think there's just a lot of things going on. Plus, there's some personal connections inside of his government to the Ukraine, as well as Canada has the third largest Ukrainian population behind, of course, the Ukraine and Russia. So there's a lot on the line for him where I don't think he felt the same way about the convoy when they were rolling into town
2: uh also have the third largest energy reserves um is there any chat of becoming more self-sufficient uh as we hear uh the prime minister say yesterday we're not importing any more oil from russia albeit a small amount uh many are questioning why we're importing any from russia or anywhere for that meanwhile we cripple what is happening out west we've seen with COVID 19 the need to be more self-sufficient now we're seeing it with conflict and energy and and russia and europe and such. Is this going to regenerate the conversation about our energy policy?
10: I think Conservatives are really banking on that, because that's one of the first punches they threw uh, coming out of this crisis. That being said, like I think the government's going to look into it, but at the same time, they're very focused on a green recovery and looking to boost our green tech sector, so I wouldn't put much faith or even that much money into the stocks of the big oil companies given this government, because I don't think upping production will be something this government is looking to do, even though we are proud owners of pipelines.
2: Uh, Is this not going to change the discussion in any way? Because clearly, uh, if we could ship them green technology to keep them warm through the summer, we would do that. Uh, Should we be shipping them wind turbines on barges or should we be shipping them liquid natural gas?
10: I think when it comes to Canada's energy and what we're doing, we should, again, like you said, focus domestically. I don't think this government has an appetite to really kind of dive too deeply into it, just given the politics around energy policy right now. So when it comes to what we should be doing, we should be supporting uh, domestic production and be able to help Canadians so that we can be self-sufficient. I don't think that the government will be looking to further this conversation just because they don't have a good track record when it comes to making our, our energy folks happy, especially when they're trying to force Canada down this green recovery, either through wind and whatnot. So I think we're going to see a tough conversation that should be happening. And I think the opposition parties are going to be trying to pounce on that conversation and box the liberal government into a corner on it.
2: Will they have a choice simply because uh, there's maybe no other option at this point?
10: There's always an option for this government to hide. Don't don't give politicians credit to <laughs> sidestep, sidestep the questions there, Scott. Um, I, I think we will... I, I hope we see a conversation. I'm not very... Not very inspired or thinking that we will be seeing one just because I don't think it's a conversation the government wants to be having right now, to be frank with you. I think they're very focused on trying to control the narrative. And I think that's what they will be doing around our clean tech and uh, our oil productions as well, and really trying to sidestep any questions.
2: Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies, talking about how we handle the situation in Ukraine with Russia's invasions coming out of a global pandemic and specifically energy. Daniel, thanks for the time, as always. Be well. Thanks, Rob. Let's find out more about the relationship between uh, Russia and Ukraine and its history. Bring in Robert Austin, Associate Director, uh, Center for European and Russian and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Robert, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
11: I'm totally well. Great to talk to you, Scott. It's
2: it, this is a fascinating scenario because I've heard some people say that uh, you know there's no love loss between Russia or Ukraine at all, and then others saying that they're you know they, the families share borders, uh, uh, Ukrainian-Russian friends, family, whatever meet. What is the history of Russia and Ukraine? What is the relationship between the citizenry of these two uh, countries?
11: Well, Scott, that's a that's a long question, but a good question. I think one has to conceive of a a relationship that has you know had its ups and downs, but it's largely been one that's friendly. You know, you think about Ukraine from in, at least in the 20th century perspective, sitting inside the Soviet Union, very much integrated in there, but always having on its mind uh, independence, for example. And I think that you know the Ukrainian independence idea is always with us. I think it gets emboldened if you think back to 1985, and many of your listeners might, to to the Chernobyl catastrophe, where I think Ukrainian nationalism really got part of its, let's say, start, at least in the 20th century context. And right now what we're looking at, I think, is largely an invented crisis, because this is something that the Russian president has decided on his own, and it is largely, and again, I say largely again, to me, manufactured in many ways, because the narrative he's pushing is by any stretch totally wrong and actually an enormous pack of lies when he tries to define the relationship between Ukrainians and Russians.
2: What is the difference between this invasion of Ukraine and the invasion of Crimea? Because it seems that uh, Putin underestimated the reaction from Ukraine, uh, whereas with Crimea it seemed relatively easy from, from our standpoint. What's the difference between these two?
11: Well, I think the international context has changed a lot. You know, 2014, uh, a new government came to power in Ukraine that actually started to pursue a course that Putin couldn't manage. Up until then, you know, he had enough influence on Ukraine not not to fret too much. But in 2014, you see voting patterns shift. You see a much more decisive interest in European integration. And also, 2014, you see a uh, much more let's say obvious fear of russia or anti-russian aspect. So 2014 the, the, with Crimea we found ourselves kind of caught blindsided. I find also that is a, is in and of itself a bit odd, but uh it wasn't just Crimea in 2014. Again, that was also uh these eastern uh territories as he calls uh, breakaway republics. They're hardly that. That's right. just simply occupied territory. But from the west perspective uh, we found ourselves caught out by that, and there wasn't much to do. And we did impose sanctions, and uh, those sanctions obviously haven't meant much, because we here we find ourselves in 2022 with something different. And the other thing, Scott, I want to mention is that, you know, the idea of Ukraine and NATO, that's born of 2014. Hmm. Because up until then, Ukrainians, you know, they were much more pro-EU, European Union, than they were pro-NATO.
2: Uh, on that note uh, we saw just a couple of days ago the uh, Ukrainian president wanting to join the EU uh, EU has come out today and said that they support uh, Ukraine and condemn Russia what does this mean is it and again uh, why isn't uh, Ukraine in NATO or, or and what's the chances of them
4: getting into the EU
11: well again I view the problem more within the framework of the challenge with you know Ukraine, finally making an abrupt turn and saying, okay, now we're going to anchor ourselves to the European project. That to me is the crux. I view NATO as as more something Putin puts out there because somehow that becomes more sellable or palatable to his own domestic audience. Because much of what he's doing, by the way, is for a domestic audience as opposed to Mm -hmm. uh, anyone else. The EU, I'm glad they're stepping up to the plate. Uh, They could have said that you know, 10 years ago, but to me that's uh, the gestures that we see from the EU, at least in saying, okay, we're now we're going to consider you as members, strikes me as a bit theatrical because Ukraine still has to meet certain criteria to join the EU. But nonetheless, it helps for sure. But, uh, you know, we often forget that this started happening in 2014. We've got eight years of, of Russia, you know, putting enormous pressure on Ukraine and Putin pushing a narrative that essentially denies Ukrainian statehood. And this is totally false. And moreover, his goal seems to be the elimination of Ukrainian sovereignty, to say nothing of what uh, you know, he would uh, do with the Ukrainian president.
2: Uh, what uh, Putin we see uh, more and more isolating himself uh, from the rest of the world as, the, as others pick up the cause of Ukraine. Where does this leave support from China? Will China help Russia out here? How do they view each other?
11: i think that the relationship is complicated and uh... i think that china will show a degree of pragmatism here i don't think that china supports the redrawing of international boundaries and that's ultimately what uh... president putin is up to He's redrawing boundaries he's he's saying international boundaries don't matter i don't think the chinese find that terribly palatable i would say that china's position is very pragmatic and the chinese leadership is uh... to be frank much more rational they would probably not support this for much longer. Their their abstention in the UN Security Council, I thought, was a little bit telling, but I would suggest they would counsel Russia to be careful here.
2: Uh, Many have said that uh, Russia laundering money through Canada, China as well, um, and we certainly know what our relationship has been with with like with china any concern that china will turn like a russia and if this was russia or sorry china doing this as opposed to russia how different would the situation be
11: if and specifically china,
2: about you know for example in, instead of invading ukraine but taiwan
11: look i you know i have to say again the chinese leadership has so much at stake and again, their foreign policy is governed by an enormous amount of pragmatism and moreover, you know, kind of smart thinking. I would highly doubt that the Chinese leadership would see any net gain from uh, an invasion of Taiwan, for example, which, by the way, would invite a much more, uh, how can I say, robust response from the West than the response that we've given Ukraine. So again, I consider the Chinese leadership too invested in the, the existing international order to try to overturn it. Putin has basically said, and he said this a long time ago, Scott, you know, he said this in Munich more than a decade ago, he said, you know, the existing security arrangements in Europe are unacceptable, and he also made it clear that the relationship with the West, and that's in a quote, is ultimately incompatible with Russian security interests. So he's basically trying to carve out a sphere of influence that that his predecessors did in the USSR, also in the 1930s and after.
2: Robert Austin with us, Associate Director, Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto. Fascinating discussion, Robert. Thanks so much for the time. Be well.
0: Thank you very much, Scott. Talk soon, I hope. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: We've certainly heard of sanctions and such and what have you, but also uh, the sports industry weighing in and weighing out of Russia. And to talk more about all this, Scott Radley, he's coming up right after the 6 o'clock news, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
3: I am. And you know what? It's interesting what you just said about Robert Fife and that comment, because what was that movie that had Tom Cruise in it years ago that was based on the sort of loosely based on the plan to kill Hitler once upon a time? Um, I can't think of the name of it, but you know what? He says it, but I think a lot of people have thought that what if one of Putin's guards just, you know, wheeled around and blasted him and you know it
2: just says all right we've had enough of this
3: well look
2: but then couldn't you see that of you know i mean man you start saying that about political leaders you could say about a lot yeah
3: but but most political leaders have not done this they may do crazy things but they Good haven't point. invaded and it. it's not sort of a wanton disregard for everything that the, i mean the, when the entire world is telling you you're wrong and you're insane um even that information has to leak into Russia somehow. And some of these people, if nothing else, some of these people have to be wondering when this thing settles down. And again, I don't want to make too many comparisons to Nazi Germany and to Hitler because I, I hate when people do that. But when this thing is over, are they going to be called on the carpet as war criminals as well because they just followed yeah. along blindly to what Putin said to do? Good do, you point. Want, do you want that to be your life that you're now a war criminal because you didn't stand up to him?
2: uh certainly we're hearing lots of sanctions which is about the best we can do uh for the allies supplying equipment military hardware and such uh but now we're also hearing uh and obviously businesses air travel um shipping lanes They're vodka hurting. Uh, you know, everything's uh, been sanctioned, but but specifically sports. And I think it yep. started uh, there was some chatter about uh, f one and then uh, international hockey and then FIFA so World it, Cup yeah. soccer. So how big of an impact do these sporting events have on this country?
3: Well, uh, so when I first heard this, like a lot of people, I, I, you know your first initial reaction is, well, that who cares? I mean, so they can't play in a hockey tournament, and you go, that is that really impactful? Keep in mind one thing. Remember the Olympics in Sochi. It was the Russians, through their government, who had an institutionalized doping pro- a plan. Like a, a, yeah. a, a, they they that that whole movie that's on um, Icarus that's on Netflix about the this the Russian government sponsored doping thing.
0: Yeah. You don't
3: think you don't think that winning and sports and taking their place on the world stage through sports matters to them? I mean, they're the the, that we know of and there may be others, but they're the one country that as a as an as a regime put in a doping protocol to make sure they won. They spent $51 billion on the Winter Olympics in Sochi. You don't think that 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 sports matter to them as a um, as I say, as as a presentation of their might on the world stage.
2: It well, does. look at all the chatter, just the chatter around Beijing and what they were going through and, and how they didn't want to have a black eye or this invasion during their game.
3: Well, is, it, is that not, one, and it's great you bring that up, because is that not one of the most cynical and pathetic things ever? That yeah. This invasion, which shouldn't have happened, of course, at all, but that by all accounts, russia held off on invading another country and killing wantonly all kinds of people held off doing that because they didn't want to interfere with an olympics and with some games and with a a party that beijing was having because you don't want to take you don't want to distract people from that so we'll we'll go do all of our killing and destruction after you had your party because we don't want to be a distraction
2: that's and let's not and let's not forget kidding. about the photo op, let's not forget about the photo op between the two presidents there of talking course. about their ability to work together. And then who knows, you know, <laughs> we all knew what happened after that.
3: It's 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 absolutely the absolute height of insanity. But you're right. It points to the fact that, you know, we can mock the imp- importance or the the strength of having these groups, FIFA and UEFA and IIHF and all these cancel Russia's sports programs. We can say it's nothing. It's just games. It clearly really, really, really matters to them. And, and and once more, I mean, look, go back. It's amazing that 50 years ago this year was the 1972 Summit Series with Canada and Russia, when, when the Soviets were wow. the evil empire. And 50 <laughs> yeah. years later, after a whole period of perestroika and all that time in between when we became very friendly and everything, we are right back where we started, that they are the evil empire. And that, that, if nothing else, is a reminder to us, that 72 series, that you know, as much as anything else, hockey is part of the soul of Russia as well. And so to ban them from being involved in any kind of tournaments, it's not an insignificant
2: thing. It really isn't. And not to mention the business side of it. Uh, Scott of Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks for listening to the
0: Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900-CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
2: That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. is always greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills, Diana and Dave, for helping out with the show as always. And thanks to you, the good listener, for supporting us the way you always do. And as we always do, we leave it to you, the taxpaying and listener, to have the last word.
1: Why do we always have to import oil? In my estimation, I'm just an 81-year-old lady, but, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Why should we buy from somebody else when we've got probably a better product here?
4: Well said. After 81 years of experience...